And Radio Derb is on the air. Welcome, listeners. That was Haydn's Derbyshire March number two. And this is, of course, your regularly genial host, John Derbyshire, with commentary on the week's news. I'll start this week's programme with the observation that being important and being interesting are independent states of being. A thing can be one, or the other, or both, or neither. So, come to think of it, can a person. But that's not what I'm concerned with here. Cosmology is really interesting, but on the scale of human life, really not at all important. Well, here, to start us, is a contrary case. Something that is deeply intrinsically boring, but terrifically important. What is it? Listen and you will know. Yesterday evening, Thursday, I took the train into Manhattan for an event organised by CIS, the Centre for Immigration Studies. CIS is based in Washington, D.C., but they stage events in New York City, and perhaps, for all I know, in other cities too, twice a year, to spread their message and raise funds. You join 20 or 30 other people in a lecture room at one of the old, comfortable gentlemen's clubs. You socialise for half an hour, and then a CIS speaker gives a presentation, followed by a good, lively Q&A. There's finger food and there's a wine bar. I like these events. I learn something I didn't know, and I meet old acquaintances that I haven't kept up with as well as I should have. The House of Patriotic Immigration Reform has many mansions. Here at vday.com, we have had our differences with CIS, but never to the degree of throwing furniture at each other. Set against the outrages perpetrated by the current administration, wide open borders, perversions of immigration law, etc., our differences look small indeed. Last night's speaker was a lively and very personable young lady named Elizabeth Jacobs. Her topic was regulation. Precisely, to quote the title of her talk as advertised, Regulation Warfare, the Biden Administration's Agenda and How the Public Can Make a Difference. I confess I was expecting this to be a snoozer. My friend and occasional vdare.com contributor, Bob Weisberg, is a professor emeritus of political science with many decades of teaching that subject at NYU and the University of Illinois. Bob actually describes himself as, quote, a recovering academic, end quote. 
Well, Bob once told me that the least popular class in all his teaching portfolio, and the class that was most difficult to ignite any interest in among the students, was the class on regulation. The topic is, said Bob, just intrinsically boring, but nonetheless important. Miss Jacobs clarified things somewhat, as well as she could in a 45-minute presentation. Congress, she pointed out, does not just pass laws to tell us what we can and cannot do if we want to stay out of jail. It also directs federal agencies to issue rules to more closely define how the laws should be administered. This is all according to the Administrative Procedure Act that has been with us since the Truman administration. Those rules can, if I understood the lady correctly, they can be pretty fluid and subject to partisan bias. We, well, I, vaguely understand, for example, that an alien can't be lawfully accepted for settlement as a full immigrant if he can't support himself. Sure enough, U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, USCIS, has a public charge rule to regulate this issue. What exactly does the public charge rule say, though? Well, by all means, look it up and see if you can figure out the answer. I made a good-faith attempt, but my eyes glazed over about 400 words in. The Trump administration, Ms. Jacobs told us, issued revised rules that were stricter on the public charge issue. But, of course, the Biden people annulled those changes. It's like that all over immigration law. The law tells us, for example, that persecution on grounds of, quote, race, religion, nationality, membership in a particular social group or political opinion, end quote, is necessary for an alien to be granted refugee status. What is included in particular social group, though? Redheads? Left-handed people? The law doesn't specify. There are rules, there are regulations, all of them vulnerable to political manipulation. Again, the term lawfully present is common in immigration law. What does it actually mean, though? Quote, a lawfully present alien is any non-US citizen presently permitted by the Department of Homeland Security, one of its agencies, or the Department of Justice to remain in the United States. End quote. So, it's decided by regulation, not really by law. 
shouldn't the term really be regulatorily present? The so-called DACA recipients broke our laws by coming here. The Obama administration said, yeah, we're okay with them though, so they are lawfully present. Sorry to go down into the weeds like this. And yes, Bob Weisberg is right. I'm falling asleep just talking about this stuff. In regard to which, I should be clear that everything I have said here is my own reading from my own scribbled notes of what Elizabeth Jacobs said last night. She is in no way responsible for any misunderstandings I may have perpetrated. What about the second part of the title that she gave to her talk? How can the public make a difference? Here I learned something I didn't know at all. There is a website you can go to, regulations.gov, where you can post comments on the entire rulemaking process, comments that the regulating agencies have to respond to although in most cases they have 60 days to do so. You can search the website by agency, by docket type, by date comment was posted, and so on. Pretty nifty. So ordinary citizens can make a difference? Well, before you jump to it, the agencies only have so many employees that they can assign to deal with our comments, so the process is easily gamed. On immigration issues, for example, you see a mighty host of comments from AILA. AILA, A-I-L-A, that's the American Immigration Lawyers Association. A powerful and well-funded lobby for... Well, for anything that helps to make immigration lawyers rich. Ms. Jacobs told us that commenting at regulations.gov is worthwhile nonetheless. She is a very smart lady who knows her subject in depth, so by all means, give it a try. My thanks to her and to Mark Krikorian and his colleagues at CIS for a convivial and instructive evening. I'm still not sure that I understand much about the regulatory process, but I know more than I did this time last week. Over in Europe, there have been some glimmers of sense on the issue of mass immigration. Switzerland held a general election last Sunday. Result? A big advance for the Trumpish SVP party, which favours stricter control of immigration, which in fact has a population policy, as every political party everywhere should have, but very few do. The SVP's population policy is to keep Switzerland's 8.7 million strong population below 10 million. SVP actually placed first in the popular vote with 
This is a multi-party system, though. No less than ten parties won seats in the Swiss Parliament. It's also a complicated system. It's not clear to me how the SVP's triumph will translate into national policy. But they seem hopeful. Quote from the report in the London Guardian, quote, The leader of the populist right-wing Swiss People's Party, SVP, has promised more pragmatism and, in a quote, less political correctness, end in a quote, after it won Sunday's election with an improved vote share of 28%, end quote. Across the Alps in Germany, meanwhile, Chancellor Olaf Scholz, who usually shows up in news reports prefixed with the epithet centre-left, Chancellor Scholz told his country's parliament on October 19th that Germany needs to start deporting, quote, on a large scale, end quote, Migrants who don't have the right to stay in the country. Chancellor Olaf Scholz is, of course, hearing the hoofbeats of AFD, the Alternative for Germany party, riding to rescue Germany from the immigration catastrophe unleashed by his predecessor Angela Merkel eight years ago. AFD has been polling well recently, at the expense of Schultz's coalition. As an ex-Brit, I would like to tell you that there have been similar stirrings of good sense in the UK. Unfortunately, I can't. The place is too far gone. Just reading about events in the old country makes my blood boil. Here, for example, was the always reliable Ed West, writing at his Substack account on Tuesday. The topic here is public housing in Britain, although nowadays the euphemism social housing is preferred. An odd thing about housing in London is that some of the nicest, most expensive districts have a lot of social housing scattered among the mansions of the upper middle classes. A much odder thing is that a lot of this social housing in tony, pricey neighbourhoods is inhabited by immigrants of the least desirable kind. Front men for Middle Eastern terrorist outfits, for instance. Quote from Ed. Many people might be surprised to learn that social housing disproportionately favours people from abroad. Across the UK, 16% of British citizens live in government housing, compared to 17% of foreign nationals. In London, 30% of people born in the Middle East live in government housing, and 40% of sub-Saharan Africans. This rises to close to three-quarters 
for those born in Somalia. Large numbers of people who arrived, even in the last ten years, occupy social housing in London, often in its most expensive parts. Indeed, a major driver of low-skilled immigration is needs-based access to social housing, without which it would not be possible for people to move here. End quote. Ed offers us some lurid examples. Here, for example, is Muhammad Qasem Sawalha, a leading fundraiser for Hamas. Yes, that Hamas. The authorities in Barnet, a very pleasant and very expensive borough of northwest London. The authorities there housed Sawalha in a two-storey house with a garden and garage back in 2003, all at a very modest rent. In 2021, the borough sold him the house at a 26% discount on the market value. Ed West notes that, quote, It is worth remembering that in 2008, Barnet had the longest council waiting list in Britain. End quote. In other words, there were many, many legacy British people hoping to get social housing in the borough. The kind of house that this known terrorist frontman had been given. Mention of being on the waiting list for public housing conjures up one of my earliest memories. It is of Monday, May twenty fourth, nineteen forty eight, ten days short of my third birthday. I had spent that first three years of my life living with my parents and my sister in some rented rooms in a poor part of Northampton, England. They were on a waiting list for public housing, but prospects of getting it seemed to be years away. Title to that house where they were renting belonged to a young man who was killed in the war. When his will was settled, Mom and Dad had to move out. They were in serious peril of becoming homeless. Britain had acquired a socialist government in 1945, though, and that government had embarked on a big program of building public housing. At the last minute, in May 1948, our number came up on the waiting list. That day, May 24th, 1948, we moved to a brand new house in a better neighbourhood, with rent nine. Shillings a week, less than four dollars at that time. That was public housing then, for the British working class. If you had told people back then that foreigners could jump the queue for public housing on account of their need, you would have been laughed out of the room. The boss here, Peter Bremelow, 
is another former Brit of approximately the same age as myself. He once remarked, and still occasionally re-remarks, in reference to Britain's demographic catastrophe, that, quote, People should be hung from lampposts. They should be burned alive for what they've done to Britain. End quote. That, of course, sends progressives to the fainting couch. But those of us who remember Britain, when she was Britain, before the Great Replacement, we all agree with him. We understand, though, that it was suicide, not murder. There is something pitiful, something yielding in the modern British character that allowed it to happen. The suicidal impulse is not universal. There's always been some resistance. When it mattered, though, the yielders were always more numerous than the resistors, and they won the day. There was a little tableau illustrating those two parties, yielders and resistors, in this news coverage of Arab protests in London last weekend. Two young white Englishmen were there counter-protesting. They carried between them a large English flag. That is, the Cross of St George, in red on a white background. Not to be confused with the more complicated Union Jack flag of the UK. An officer of the Metropolitan Police, another young white Englishman, confronted and warned them against doing or saying anything racist. His assumption must be that legacy English people flaunting an English flag on English soil in England's capital city are hovering on the edge of racism. There you see them. Two resistors and a yielder. The yielder is the one clothed in governmental authority. So, what about this new speaker that our House of Representatives has gotten for itself? This chap, Mike Johnson. Personally, I didn't lose any sleep over the House not having a speaker. My reaction to it all was more or less the same as that tweeted out by cancelled cartoonist Scott Adams on Monday. Tweet. I'd like to thank Matt Gates for doing the only useful thing that happened in Congress lately. Since removing the Speaker, Congress has not given away any of my money to people I don't want to have it. It's progress. Let's keep it going. End tweet. Yep, a few more days with no speaker would be a few more when the Congress critters were not giving away billions of dollars to foreigners. What's not to like? That's not a proper attitude for a responsible citizen, though. <laughs> 
There is stuff the feds should spend our money on. And the Constitution says that Congress is the authority for them to do so. So, hey, two cheers for the new speaker. What kind of Congress critter is he, though? He's a Republican, I see. But is he a uniparty Republican? Or is he one of that handful that still have a few spinal vertebrae in position? The first reports I saw were encouraging. This one, from the Twitter handle Red Eagle Patriot, quite swept me off my feet. Tweet. Mike Johnson has voted against every Ukraine aid package since the first one and has received an F grade from the pro-Ukraine scorecard. He signed on to Ken Paxton's Texas v. Pennsylvania and voted to object to the 2020 election results and urged every other House Republican to do so. He aided Trump's legal counsel in both bogus impeachment trials. He called for Nancy Pelosi to be arrested. He voted for a de facto immigration moratorium and has a career A grade from Numbers USA. He introduced the Stop Sexualization of Children Act to combat alphabet extremism. He supports prayer in public schools and he still opposes gay, quote, marriage, end quote. And he is outwardly opposed by Bill Kristol, Adam Kinzinger and Mitt Romney, end tweet. That's a darned impressive list. I checked a couple of the facts there. Yes, he is a Numbers USA Grade A. Yes, he's ranked F by that Ukraine website. Yes, Bill Crystal is seething. Hey, I like the cut of Mike Johnson's jib. A couple of mild negatives turned up. A person better informed than I am told me that Numbers USA congressional rankings are not totally reliable. Then Wikipedia told me Johnson is a creationist. I was not much disturbed by either. Maybe Johnson would be an A- or a B- if the rankings were done accurately. That's still vastly better than the solid ranks of Fs that you get for Democrat Congress people, even if some of them should be F plus or E minus. As for creationism, I don't much care. In close engagements during the evolution wars 20 years ago, I met some quite smart and pleasant people who were creationists. Not everybody can engage intellectually with the scientific method. Then I started to see tweets and to get emails about Representative Johnson's personal life. 
He's 51, married his wife in 1999, when he would have been 27. He and his wife have four kids, two sons aged 12 and 18, two daughters aged 21 and 23. They also have an adopted son, a black boy who they took in when they were newlyweds, says his office in a statement to Newsweek magazine this morning. The adoptee was 14 years old at the time, which means that he's now in his late 30s. We're told that he's married with a family of his own and lives in California. That's been exciting some interest, particularly because this black adoptee has been hitherto invisible. He doesn't appear in the family photographs on Johnson's website or on his Facebook page. He wasn't mentioned in Johnson's campaign biographies either until that statement that was issued this morning. And while Johnson may have an excellent voting record in the House, he's come across in some reports as, to put it as nicely as possible, naive on issues of race. The key evidence here is a 2020 interview with journalist Walter Isaacson for the PBS show Amanpour & Co., You can find the interview on YouTube. Just put Amanpour and Company Mike Johnson in the YouTube search bar. Amanpour is A-M-A-N-P-O-U-R. The interview was done right after George Floyd died. Johnson is totally on board with the evil white cop, helpless black victim narrative. He also speaks warmly about his black adopted son, but he qualifies it with, quote, My son Michael had a harder time than my son Jack is going to have simply because of the colour of his skin, and that's a reality. It's an uncomfortable, painful one to acknowledge, but people have to recognise that's a fact. I think that we need, we really do need, systematic change. I think we need transformative solutions, end quote. So, even if not an anti-white ethno-masochist, definitely not a race realist. A mixed bag, then. Still, Johnson's good points are all pertinent to his job in Congress, and he's no more of a fantasist on race than the average GOP Congress weenie. We could have done worse. When Lenin, soon followed by Trotsky and Stalin, coined the phrase, who whom, a hundred years ago, he lit such a candle as may never be put out. Our present-day cultural revolution, 
and perhaps all such upheavals in all times and places, is flagrant hoo-hoomery. My V-Day colleague Steve Saylor has been telling us this for years. Steve actually declares his preferred pronouns to be who and whom. The who-whom nature of our cultural revolution would probably be more widely recognised than it is if our educational system had not degenerated in recent decades. No one under the age of 40 who was raised in Britain or the USA can distinguish between the nominative and accusative cases of nouns and pronouns. Heaven forfend our children should be subjected to the white supremacist indignities of English grammar. These melancholy and, yes, I'll allow, somewhat geezerish thoughts, they came to mind while I was reading my New York Post the other day. The actual article I was reading was about tipping. That's tipping as in gratuities. The extra few dollars you add to a restaurant or other bill in acknowledgement of good service. The writer here is veteran culture critic Steve Quozo, writing in The Post, October 26th, or 25th in the online edition. He's mainly writing about the decline in New York City restaurant service. He doesn't pull his punches. Sample. It's infuriating when we're forced or urged to gift, in a quote, hard-working, and in a quote, service workers, when the service sometimes stinks. Make that stinks, blows and sucks. In my long career of writing about the New York City dining scene, I have never seen so many waiters, in a quote, food runners, and in a quote, and other floor functionaries who are either untrained, stoned, or both, as I have in the past year. Nor, in a quote, managers, and in a quote, who, rather than actually manage anything, pace back and forth like scared wildebeests and occasionally stop by to ask if everything's delicious. End quote. Go get them, Steve. I bet you know the difference between nominative and accusative, right? The heart of Steve's complaint, though, is compulsory tipping. Instead of leaving it up to the diner to decide what gratuity, if any, to add when paying our bill, we now see either mandatory tips added to the total or suggested tips urged upon us, usually either 20 or 25%. The tipping rule I learned as a young adult, and which I still cleave to when not coerced otherwise, 
is 15% for standard service, modified down or up for less than or better than standard. To be honest, and to simplify the arithmetic, I just divide the bottom line by 7 for a standard tip. That works out to a tad more than 14%. Yes, I'm cheap, so sue me. Where is the who-whom in all this? Well, Steve Quozo, after venting on the issue for several paragraphs, Steve tells us this, quote, Most infuriating is the attitude of James Malios, the owner of Amali on 60th Street and Kalissa in Water Mill, which are now adding 18% to all checks. In a quote, when customers act upset, it's really about loss of the power dynamic, Malios told the Post. They want to be able to determine a person's wage, and this is the only industry where you can do that. End in a quote. But eaters don't determine a person's wage. The restaurant does. Malios could pay his servers more and simply charge more for his food. Instead, he bullies customers with an automatic tip, whether it's deserved or not. End quote. Did you catch that? Loss of the power dynamic. That phrase is right out of the critical theory concocted by the Frankfurt School and other mid-20th century malcontents. Oppressors, in this case restaurant customers, are oppressing oppressed people, i.e. the waitstaff. Critical theory has now escaped from the philosophers to infect the general population. In this case, a midwit restaurant proprietor. Phrases like loss of the power dynamic are no longer scholarly theorising. They are the common currency of ordinary citizens, or at any rate of college graduates in undemanding subjects. They are midwit metaphysics. I doubt James Malios could tell you which is which of nominative and accusative, but I'm sure he can discourse at length on who is the who and who is the whom in every aspect of our... Uh, what is it called? Oh, right. Our power dynamic. As a footnote to that... The Middle East ructions of this past three weeks, and more particularly the attendant protests in the streets of America and other Western nations, have cast a whole new light on the Jew thing. Are the Jews collectively a who or a whom? Our own Steve Saylor posted here at vday.com 
October 13th, calls this, I hope not altogether seriously, the world historical question. I can't improve on Steve, so I will just quote him. Quote, The world historical question at the moment is whether American Jews, who are arguably the single most influential politically mobilizable group in the modern globe, will figure out that woke anti-white hatred is inherently anti-Semitic. Or will they assume the solution must be tripling down yet again on promoting racist anti-white hatred as the only way to unify the coalition of the fringes? I could see it going either way. End quote. Well, Steve, I could see it going both ways. A Jewish friend told me, and I'm sure he was quoting someone or other, that whenever there's a contentious issue being argued in the public forum, you can be sure to find Jews arguing on both sides. That even applies to issues that we might think existential for the Jews themselves. In these recent protests, a Jewish anti-Zionist outfit called Jewish Voice for Peace has been out there shrieking along in unison with the anti-Semitic mob. All of which just reminds me why I do my best to stay clear of the Jew thing. Not that I can altogether resist some of the temptations. On a couple of occasions this past three weeks, meeting a Jewish friend, I have opened the conversation by saying, You do realise that you're white now, don't you? And now, our closing miscellany of brief items. Imprimis. Just this week I have read that... 1. The Rolling Stones' new album, Hackney Diamonds, is out. Their first album for almost 20 years. And they're doing live shows to promote it. 2. Cher, as in Sonny and Cher, has brought out an album of Christmas songs. The lady is 77 years old. 3. A new Beatles song will be released next week. It features the voice of John Lennon, who was murdered in 1980. So how did they do that? Artificial intelligence, that's how. I'm sorry, but I find this all a bit creepy. That Beatles item, of course, the creepiest of all. Is it for real? Or have I slipped through a crack in the space-time continuum? If the latter, can I please get my 1970 body back? Item. I still can't figure out how seriously I should take Vivek Ramaswamy, 
but he sure does say some things that are music to my ears. Ramaswamy told Politico on Monday that he thought it, quote, a reasonable idea, end quote, for the USA to leave NATO. He also told them that he is, quote, open to re-evaluating U.S. involvement in the U.N., end quote. Be still my heart. I think I was a bit more explicit about the U.N. in my 2009 interview with The Economist. Mm, something about reducing the site to rubble, ploughing it under and sowing the ground with salt. I'll settle for a salt-free disengagement, though. But would the swamp swallow up Ramaswamy the way it swallowed up, uh, oh, you know, other presidents who on the campaign trail said similarly sensible things? Is it worth taking a gamble on? Item. Lunatics at large. Last Sunday, an off-duty airline pilot, riding along in the cockpit of an Alaskan Airlines flight down the west coast, tried to cut off the plane's fuel in mid-air. Fortunately, crew members subdued him, and the plane landed safely. In Oregon State Court on Tuesday, he pleaded not guilty to three counts of attempted murder. This perp told police he'd had a nervous breakdown, amplified by taking a first-time dose of psychedelic mushrooms. Then on Wednesday evening, a different guy, firing a military rifle, killed 18 people and wounded 13 more, at a bowling alley in Lewiston, Maine. The perp here, still at large as I speak, is an army reservist. He had behaved erratically at a summer training camp, though, and been sent for medical evaluation. I have my own issues with red flag laws, but if there's a case for them, this guy is it. That aside, these two stories illustrate only the melancholy fact that lunatics live among us, and that, while we should of course strive to identify and incarcerate where we can, short of a thoroughly totalitarian assault on our liberties, this will likely always be the case. That's all, ladies and gents. Thank you for your time and attention, for your emails and donations. Enjoy your Halloween. It may be the last before they cancel it, as one New Jersey school district is already doing the Rolling Stones, Cher, The Beatles. Yeah, yeah. If we're talking about later 20th century pop music, though, 
I am going to unmask myself as an unapologetic Bee Gees fan. Barry, Robin and Morris were as good as it gets. I'll brook no argument. Here is one of their sweetest. There will be more from Radio Derb next week. Christmas trees were tall We used to laugh while others used to play Don't ask me why The time has passed us by Someone else moved in from far away Now we are tall Christmas trees are small And you don't ask the time of day But you and I Our love will never die The girls who cry Come The apple tree that grew for you and me I watched the apples fall